Ajahn Sana, thank you so, so very much for coming on to the show today. And um, I discovered you and your videos through uh, your video, uh, 20 Years as a Monk. And um, I thought your story was quite intriguing. And uh, we can thank the almighty YouTube algorithm for bringing us together. And uh, so we're fortunate in that circumstance. But I wanted to bring you on to really dive more into the monastic lifestyle that you have lived over these probably uh, 30 years now, I would say, if the math is correct. And, um, you know, how maybe the layperson can relate to what you've gone through and maybe just some f philosophical insights that we can dive into. But um, my, I want to really ask you how you got into the lifestyle because you, you said at the age of, I think it was 15, there was just this sudden insight that came upon you where you saw that everybody was living this, I think you said it was a story or some kind of illusion. And we go to and fro and we, we do these, these fruitless actions for, and it seemed to be no reason. And um, I wanted to know uh, what was the time in between that you had this epiphany and then what between the time you had this epiphany and then the time you decided to live in the monastic order? What, what was the span of time in between that? It actually uh, it took me about six weeks before I ran away from home. <laughs> <laughs> After my, uh, my 15 year old revelation, suddenly everything seemed a little bit uh, absurd. And uh, at the same time, an intoxicating feeling of freedom to just make sudden decisions in whatever direction you wish to. Since mm. uh, my little revelation had revealed <laughs> that everything is a kind of a story. And so just one day in, uh, in school, in, in class, I, I, the teacher happened to be out of the room and I just stood up and said to my friend behind me, I said, let's just get out of here. Let's just leave. And he said, okay. <laughs> so we left. <laughs> we, we, we were, we hitchhiked around. We were, eventually the cops picked us up 250 miles away <laughs> and, uh, and brought me back. Uh, with, at which time I made a negotiation with my parents that I would, I would not run away again, but I needed the freedom to just uh, go camping anytime I wanted. So mm. that was the, the deal. Now that camping thing <laughs> was really more or less a, prep, a kind of a uh, substitute for monastic life. It's really like, I want to go out, abandon all of the trappings of ordinary life and civilization. I want to just be with myself, uh, preferably in nature. And that's kind of what original uh, Buddhist monasticism is, is that uh, when we drop all of the social uh, fictions, who are we? Who, when we're not uh, a person with a job, when we're not a father or a mother, or a, what, who are we when all of those roles are taken away? So I think that's, that was what I was after. But mm. I didn't actually... Uh, my final sort of exit was at 29 
after uh, engaging in, in ordinary life as a, I was married to an opera singer and uh, I was a musician in Toronto and, and I had a house and a career and so forth. So, uh, but one day again, sort of like standing up in class and leaving, I, I said, I'm out. <laughs> Bye everybody. <laughs> here's my money. Here's take everything. I'm gone. And it was like, just kind of like the same thing. And it was a preliminary to, uh, to uh, monastic life. However, I had had already some uh, sincere and uh, extensive meditation practice by that time with uh, both a Tibetan Lama who uh, lived in Toronto and a Korean Zen master who also lived in Toronto. So I, I spent uh, some years between the two of them and practicing a lot of meditation while I was still a musician. But uh, that meditation, in fact, confirmed my basic uh, view of life, my suspicion of life. There are other um, kind of traditions in the West that have, are close to the sort of feeling that I had and, and in some ways close to Buddhism. And that, that is uh, existentialism. Uh, the, and uh, however, there's two kinds of existentialism. There's one, uh, uh, the famous Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus, Albert Camus. They are um, annihilationist uh, existentialists. So they have no belief in uh, uh, con con uh, continuation beyond this life. And because of that, it's absurd. And you have to make choices amongst these all ultimately meaningless kind of uh, possibilities. There's another type of existentialist who occurred earlier. And one of the, the sort of the example of it is Kierkegaard. And he is, uh, he's a Christian existentialist. He's the one that brings up this feeling of, which, which influenced the, the later existentialists. He's the one that talks about the sense of, of the absurd, but also the profound anxiety, fear and trembling, uh, the anxiety of being alive, of being in existence and, and having to make choices. So his big, his big thing is that you can't get away from the fact that you have to make choices. The only thing you, only thing you don't have is the ability not to make choices. So life is the game that must be played. Once you're in, you have to play. So these are, these are kind of, uh, they're coming to a similar type of uh, conclusion to Buddhism because Buddhism also, although it, it has a very deep uh, co commitment to the notion of continuation of lives. So after this death, one is, is reborn, etc. However, it, it doesn't have a final goal or resolution. So ultimately, no matter how many times you're born or where, where or how you're born, it's ultimately transient, temporary, and in a sense, it's simply meaningless because it just keeps going on. And any kind of stability or happiness is, is easily swept out from underneath you. And at the same time, you're thrust into this and cannot get out of it. And you have to continuously make decisions. And these decisions are 
are every day, you have to make moral decisions. You have to make decisions about what are you going to do for a livelihood. You, your decision about your relationships. You're constantly burdened with these decisions, which you, you can't avoid. You can't have somebody else make them. And so you're a huge amount of personal responsibility there. And you have to kind of try to make sense and some sense of well-being in the midst of this uh, sort of ongoing uh, dream. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's the challenge. And, and it's been well practiced and worked out and articulated in the East. And it wasn't really in the West. I just found that the, the solutions that Sartre had or Camus had, or I was very interested in philosophy, so Nietzsche, uh, all of the, the Western philosophers, inclu including the Greek philosophers. I was very interested in, in Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. What did they have to say? I find a, a, lot, of, a lot more sanity in the early Greek philosophers than I do in the later um, uh, development of philosophy. Uh, but I didn't find the solutions that the modern existentialist philosophers had were, were satisfactory to me. I, have a, I had a feeling that they weren't sincere. They said things, but they didn't really act in accordance with that. They talked about this absolute freedom, but when you look at their lives, they usually had drinking problems. <laughs> they were liars, womanizers, and at the same time, they had a sense of duty to society. Uh, Sartre spent his life kind of with social action, criticizing power and so forth, because he'd been in the Second World War. And that struck me as strange. Like, why would you care if it's all absurd? Like, you seem to be awfully dedicated to trying to be in a goody-goody if none of it matters. So I don't see consistency in their, their brave statement that it's all absurd. And at the same time, they tend to conform to conventional ideas of goodness. And at the same time, they, they lapse personally. And at, they're also, why did they drink so much? <laughs> so this is the thing. <laughs> so there you go. Yes. There's, a, there's a good beginning to things. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm glad that you said that Buddhism is um, life is like a game and because that's how I see it as well I've always had this philosophy throughout my life that there this you know this this crazy existence that we find ourselves in is um, it has a game like quality you know there are there's laws um, and there's there's certain uh, there's certain rules that we, uh, we abide by and it's just it, there's you know and there's there's certain aspects that seem like a game like a video game and I'm, I'm interested in um, a lot of different philosophies as well. I, I like to, I, I think there's some kind of universal truth within all of the, uh, all of the religions and any, you know, how, whether it's some kind of uh, Wiccan religion, Satanism, Christianity, Judaism, whatever it is, I think there's something that's touching upon something in, uh, in all of us. But there's something about Buddhism that I found to be unlike any other philosophy in that it's like a, it's not like a traditional dogma. It seems to be, to a lay person like me, it seems to be like a manual 
and it seems to be like a strategy guide in order to, I guess you can say, win the game or to escape the game or just to, to liberation that other religions don't quite have or don't quite uh, point you in the direction toward. And um, I was wondering if, I was going to ask you if you feel the same way and it seems like you do that like, and that's why you seem to resonate not with the, uh, the, the existential nihilism of the other people that you just mentioned. And um, do you think that Buddhism is, is like a means to an end? I guess you could say it's that it, it is the ultimate truth. Like there is, cause it is, it's, it's a very simple way of, um, like it's, it's simple, you know, when you when to, like I said, I'm a, I'm just a lay person. I'm not a, I'm not a monk. I, but I, I've read, uh, some things like I've read the Dhammapada and I uh, just something I've, I've watched plenty of your videos and it seems to be like Buddhism. It's, it's not a true, it's not a dogma. It is, it is a guide. It's a, it's like, it's guiding us to true liberation. Is that like the essence of it is, is, is the only way the middle path is the only way out of this, out of samsara through uh, what the Buddha taught? Yes, it's strategies for overcoming the emotional distress of existence. And there's all kinds of attempts. Uh, people uh, suffer and they, they look for relief. And most of them are not geniuses. So they look for relief in simple things like drinking a bottle of whiskey every day. <laughs> or mm -hmm. gambling or cliff climbing or something like that. There's all, all kinds of uh, activities which like ex even extreme sports and so forth. These are actually maskings for an attempt to uh, overcome their own sense of lack and suffering in the moment. So if you're climbing, if you're free climbing a cliff, you're entirely in the present because you can't afford not to be. And it's, it's life enhancing. And you're actually, you'll, you'll get to the stage where you're willing to risk your life because it feels so good. And you think it's to do with climbing a cliff, but it's not. It's to do with paying attention 100% mm. in the present. So it's a form of mindfulness, mm. but it's induced by terror of falling. <laughs> You can't afford not to be mindful. <laughs> so people take up all kinds of activities in order to deal with this basic problem of existence. And some of these are very unskillful uh, and some of them are more skillful. You know, so you spend your time uh, doing mathematics or physics and improving the world or something. But it's, uh, if you have gratification out of it, it's really a way of dealing with your the core issue of uh, the problem of existence. So the Buddha is talking about, he says, this is, what, this, is, uh, this is the problem. We start off, the first noble truth is, there's a problem. Now, you'll, you'll find people, well, what? I haven't got a problem. I'm all right, Jack. <laughs> well, just wait. <laughs> you'll have a problem. Mm -hmm. one, one thing or another, <laughs> there's no way to go through life without a problem. So he says, you gotta, you gotta realize how, how inclined all of existence is towards eventually some sort of graphic problematic situation, either physical, 
distress and pain, sickness, uh, social uh, loss of, loss of uh, reputation, condemnation, uh, innocent, innocently being swept up like the Second World War, you know, millions of people innocently swept up and, and incarcerated and eventually killed for no particular reason. Uh, this is imminent and always possible for everybody. So that's when we look upon that scene, we think now how, is there any way to deal with this? What would be the best way to deal with it? Uh, and people try, they, they get insurance policies or they think I have, a good, I have a good car to escape. You know, the California fires, for instance, everybody's, the car is packed, right? So they, they've got their escape plan and so forth. But one way or the other, the fire catches you, the disease cat, you know, we get COVID. Is, are you going to get the flu or are you going to get the burnt out of your house? You know, which one are you going to, mm -hmm. which one you want? Mm -hmm. Both maybe. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's a, because you're a fragile, human is just fragile, vulnerable, mm. prone to sickness, and certainly will age and certainly will die. Now, is there a strategy to deal with this? Can we reduce the suffering or not? And so the Buddha says, there are ways of thinking about this. There are ways of training your mind or, or getting a vision that frees you from the emotional distress of this and also frees you from having to dwell in denial of this as well. Because lots of people manage by being in denial all the time. And then when, when they, they get the cancer diagnosis, they're shocked out of their boots as if they never heard that a person could get cancer. So it's suddenly shocked, dismayed, saddened. Why? Did you not know this? It's because <laughs> they screen that from their mind. And so Buddhism wants you to say, look, let's really get into the, the, all the problems you could have. Let's really imagine it. Imagine every possibility that, that could go wrong. Now, how do we deal with that? Is there some form of well-being and stability in the midst of this situation, which is not a form of denial? <clears throat> so then they, then they give you exercises. So these are psychological exercises and trainings that you repeat again and again and again. And there's no uh, recourse to external salvation. There's no or praying to God that God will help you, etc. So th this is, it's on your own resources and it's a choice you make in life. You can, you can do this or not. Uh, and we realize also that nobody can make you do this. So we're never, Buddhists don't knock on your door and say, have you heard the good news? <laughs> we don't do that. Because <laughs> we know actually you're going to have to strongly have determination and you're going to have to come to us to inquire and if you're sincerely inquiring we can give you some some advice but that's all we can do for you we we can't really save you we can tell you how to save yourself we can teach you how to swim that's all now yeah. mm. mm. so is it in every person's destiny whether it's in this life the next life or the, the next life, whether whatever it is, is it in every person's destiny uh, to follow the monastic way? And is the monastic way the only way to actually attain nirvana? 
is there like will will I not maybe not in this life maybe late in years later but but will I in a future incarnation possibly um you know become a monk and attain nirvana because in my opinion in my viewpoint of it if everyone were to become a monk tomorrow um it just it wouldn't it, it just couldn't work like that so what is it is it in everybody's <clears throat> karma to actually follow the you know the middle path uh it's not necessary to be a monk to attain enlightenment uh, in the time of the Buddha, many, I would say that more people attain at least the first few stages of enlightenment uh, who uh, were as lay people than did as monks. And the reason why is that there's a lot more lay people than there are monks. So it's kind of like, a, a, like an amateur musician. There are, some, there are more uh, good amateur musicians than there are professional musicians, right? And some amateur musicians can play very beautifully. Some of them are very accomplished, but it's not their, uh, they, they haven't quit their day job, right? By the way, I was a musician. I was a classical musician and I did quit my day job. That's all I did was music. So, but there were other people. I, I came in, in contact with other very talented people who hadn't quit their day job. <laughs> and they were, they were accomplished and they may not be playing at Carnegie Hall or, you know, A-list kind of classical concerts, but they had attained some degree of, of, uh, of fine skills. And this, this happens in the lay life as well. Anybody who seriously takes it up and is inclined this way and so forth, it's, it's not about whether you wear robes or not. It's, it, it isn't. The, the monastic lifestyle, though, uh, people ask the Buddha this can a lay person become enlightened? And he said, yes. And then, he, then they asked him, well, why, would, why become a monk then? He said, because it's easier. <laughs> I didn't make it. For, it's not because it's harder. It's easier. You can quit your day job, right? So I went to, I went to the University of Toronto to study classical music and everything. But I didn't have to work on the side. If I had to work on the side, digging ditches or something to put myself through, it would have been a lot harder. Some people did it, but it would have been a lot harder. It's, it's, nice, it's easier. We do this because a monk's life, I don't, have a, I don't have to deal with children or families or livelihood even. I don't have to go to work. Um, so I don't have to have money and so forth. So it's easier for me. Uh, lots of people though are, they haven't even heard of this. And secondly, it involves a fairly austere lifestyle. So you got to give up a lot of the pleasures. And if, if it doesn't make sense to you to give up your, your pleasures in life, then you won't be a monk. Yeah, you don't want to be a monk. So most people mm -hmm. are like that. So most of the population is not, they, they're not uh, inclined to do that. But some people are, they, they are. And so that's why they'll never be It'll never be the case where tomorrow everybody decides to become a monk or a nun. Never happened. <laughs> By the way, uh, I have a friend, uh, Ajahn Viradamo. He's, in, uh, he's a monk. He's the abbot in Ottawa. And people asked him, what if everybody became a monk? And he, all, he always says, uh, what if everybody became a hairdresser? What would we do then? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, we all have I, our roles. It's not going to happen. 
everybody's not going to be a hairdresser and everybody's not going to be a monk. It just doesn't happen that way. You know? mm, I see. However, you asked about the future. Will, will everybody inevitably move towards this? Will, will there be a lifetime where everybody uh, passes through the monastic life? No, there's no, uh, in Buddhism, there's no predestination. There's no uh, determinism. It, it, there is no uh, vision where every, everybody finally gets enlightened and the whole universe is enlightened. The, the Buddha was asked that. He said, he was asked, how many people are going to get enlightened? And he said, I never say how many. I just say how. This is how you do it. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't ever talk about how, well, how many people are going to do this. It's not even on the table. It's just, here's, if you liber- become liberated, here's how you do it. And if one does it, fine. If a million do it, fine. It's, it's not up to him. It's, it's just the way. It's just the, the way it's done. Mm. So there are four stages of enlightenment, right? Yes. So when you said anybody can attain this, yeah. um, Can anybody attain the the last step? Anybody can attain the last step. However, if you do, you're pretty well. unsuited to live any other lifestyle than the monastic lifestyle. All of the interests, passions, and motivations that move you around as a layperson have now dissolved and gone. And you're really only suitable for uh, either the life of a hermit <laughs> or a monk. And it, it, it's just a matter of very brief time because there you don't see any other uh, value in any other lifestyle. You just that's the way uh, the all of the worldly motivations have fallen away naturally, and then the monkish lifestyle is the one that you your automat your it's your default mode. You you just whether you go into the robes or not, you're deep by default just a monk or a nun. Is enlightenment something where once you open the door, it never really closes? Or can you, let's say, within those four stages, is there something where you can, where you can go back and forth between the stages and then, or maybe even become completely ignorant of the truth? Or is this something where it's like a permanent truth that resides in, in your mind? Yes, there are the, the early school, which I am a member of, the Theravada, the, the sources from the Pali Canon, are very clear. The Buddha talks, it's non-regressive. It can't, there's, no, uh, there's no regress from that. The moment you have your first vision, uh, you can't go back. You can't lose it. And it will take various people certain amounts of time for it to develop fully. Some people will go very fast from that first glimpse to final vision, and some will take a considerable length of time, even a few lifetimes. But it's not reversible. It's irreversible. It's something you cannot lose. It, it something, uh, an illusion. Now, this, uh, this is something, uh, some of the later schools, and many, you know, a thousand years after, uh, have various uh, disputes about that, but uh, there's no, there's no, 
um, inconsistency in the early suttas about that. I, I want to sort of make it similar to uh, childhood development. You know, there's a psychologist, famous psychologist named uh, Piaget, French psychologist. He's, child, he's a child psychologist. And he, he very carefully looked at the stages of development of children. And it, there's a certain age when you're uh, about seven or so, or seven or eight, that you suddenly grasp the law of conservation. And before that, you don't. So he, what he, he sets a couple of uh, glasses on the table, a short fat one and a tall thin one. And then he pours Kool-Aid into each one, the favorite. He asks, what, what's your favorite Kool-Aid? So they, the six-year-old says, cherry Kool-Aid. So he pours it full in both. And then he asks, which one do you want? And they'll take the, the tall one. Then he, then he says, that's great. So then he takes the short one, fills it to the brim, and pours it into the tall one. And it goes right up to the top. Then he takes the tall one, pours it into the short fat one, it goes right up to the top. He does this a couple of times, right in front of him, right? And then he sets it out there and he says, now which one do you want? They take the tall one. Why do you take the tall one? It's got more in it. Just after watching, pour back and forth, it has, it's bigger. So they haven't, they can't process this. But when they get to about eight, they know that if it was the same, if it filled up both glasses, there's the same amount in both ones. So then they could say either one is the same. It's the same. That, that is a, an awakening of kind of a view of reality that you have in the natural stages of maturity. And this is kind of like this, the first stage of enlightenment. You, you, it's sudden, you suddenly see this, you see clearly the impermanent nature of things, that everything just passes away. There's, you can't grasp, you can't make anything stable. It's all, and you look into yourself and you see that your very self is like that. Everything you thought you were is also a flow, a flow of thoughts, of feelings, of endless changing, swirling. That's, that river of events is what you are. You're not a thing. You're a, you're a series of events. This, this uh, undoes a whole uh, way, a natural way of thinking. We naturally think of ourselves as a stable entity. And this is uh, in uh, theistic religions, they, they often have a, a description of the soul as an indestructible monad that travels through time unchanged in order to be eternal, it's got it's to be this unchanging thing. And this, when you look in, you don't find anything like this. So this is, this is the direct insight you have. Uh, and at that, that time, you, you realize that this is what the Buddha is saying. So you now have, you, you don't doubt what the Buddha is saying because you just saw it yourself. So it's not, your faith in the Buddha is not just a blind faith, it's that you, you came across the same realization. And now you, you don't have any doubts about, about that because when you looked, you saw the same thing. Change, change. Nothing stable, nothing solid, change. Yeah. Mm. Mm.
and it's quite relieving to come to that um, realization that it's all temporary and it, it's it's almost like it seems like it's it's almost grace in a way you know and because it is like you said the first noble truth is dukkha it's that we are it is all suffering so it is uh, the, to the normal person they would think that it's you know it's all temporary and it seems like a daunting idea like oh no but it and it comes down to attachment that we all become attached to this ever-changing world and my question to you is why is it intrinsic to human nature to become attached is that just is that the game that we're in is just attachment because it always comes back to attachment we just try so hard to find happiness in whatever it is we grasp and, and we grasp at this and that a car a person an idea a song whatever it is we just try to find happiness in something that is everything everything is going to fall away eventually so why i was going my my, my question to you was going yes. to be why why do we suffer why is, uh, why is suffering intrinsic to the human condition? But I'll take it a step further and ask, why is attachment intrinsic to the human condition? Yeah, the attachment is, is the root cause of suffering. And there's two causes given by the Buddha. One is just ignorance, and the other one is grasping, craving, or, or attachment. And you wouldn't have grasping, craving, or attachment if you weren't ignorant. And so we, we, don't, we don't know that what is giving us temporary happiness will also has another, it's two sides of the same coin. If we really like this, uh, when we lose it, how are you going to feel? So, and that losing things has to come along with having things. You, uh, in the end, all that you have which is beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from you. It, it, it must. It, either death will separate you from others, or others will die, <laughs> or they go away, or you lose it. And one of the most disturbing things is when you love something and then you don't. And it's very disturbing because you, you used to have such joy and satisfaction in something, and then you show up and you don't anymore and there's no way to recover it you just wore it out you just don't care anymore and that's disturbing then you go and because now you're you have no nourishment you, there's no source of joy so now you go and search and you hope to find something else that will take grasp you know interest you and excite you and grasp your interest and but that must also uh, pass away as well. So it's uh, it, it's uh, it's just natural. It's it takes a genius really to figure it out because it there is pleasure. There are there can be even you know years of pleasure out of certain things and so forth. And and person would say, well, why would I give this up? You know, it's it's because the alternative is not well presented. So one gives up these temporary happinesses for a much more stable uh, a practice, uh, a stable emotional happiness, which is not dependent on these things. That takes a lot of insight. And that's, that's the transition from the child 
are not understanding conservation to the to understanding it. <clears throat> so, in what, by the way, in Western psychology and even in Western philosophy, there is no accounting for a person who is uh, fundamentally happy without an explanation of why. They're they they're not it's not they're not happy because the weather's nice or they just had a nice piece of chocolate cake or they went to a movie, but they're just happy. And with, without doing any of those things, they're just happy. So we, there is no record of that. There, there's no understanding of that in Western psychology. So can that happen? So the, the, the Buddha is uh, saying, yes, you can decondition yourself, take those other things away, and end up in a kind of a steady state of well-being. Uh, this uh, steady state of well-being is, uh, is quite often even Buddhists don't understand that. They keep repeating the mantra that everything's impermanent, your emotions come and go and so forth. But actually the Buddha is saying, no, when you get far enough in your training and your, and your insight, you enter into what are called the seven factors of enlightenment. And these become the, const they, they constitute your consciousness and your feeling, your emotional structure. And they are that <clears throat> mindfulness is present, like uh, a sense of full attention without being uh, fractured and wandering. You have a full sense of attention, which you can direct. You have emotions, joy and energy. And you have an, that's part of the active side of the, the formula. So you have a, you're also remaining inquiring. You inquire into things, you, important things. So you, you look with intelligence and inquiry and analysis. You have mindfulness and it produces energy and joy. So your emotional state, that's the active side. And then there's a passive side, which consists of tranquility, profound stillness of concentration and emotional uh, balance, perfect emotional balance, which is exquisitely pleasurable. That's equanimity. That is the spectrum of the emotions that the enlightened person experiences. So the needle swings back and forth between joy, energy, tranquility, serenity, stillness, back to inquiry, but it stays in that range. It doesn't slip back into negative emotions. It doesn't slip back into anger, resentment, sadness, sorrow, grief, every proliferation of, of, of negative emotion, it stays in the spectrum. It's not fixed on one point. It moves back and forth, but they're all, <coughs> they're all, um, they're all positive, uh, in positive motion. So that's the consciousness, that's the description, the seven factors of the uh, awakened mind is the emotions are positive. And the mental states are clear, and they don't fall back out of that. Hmm. I'm glad you said that because it's to to someone who doesn't know the uh, the basis of Buddhism. It seems as though there is a there is a sense of nihilism attached to it, um, but it actually seems to be quite the opposite when you put it that way. It actually brings you to. I don't know if you want to say the word purpose, but it seems like it brings you to like a sense of, uh, like you said, well-being and just more of a just sense of just 
even though it is temporary yes. and even though it is going to eventually fade it's it almost makes it that much sweeter and that's the that's the uh it's like you enjoy this fleeting moment and you're completely okay with being temporary just this this process this this being that is going to just eventually be in the dirt someday um it's it's a it, it seems like a very mature mindset because you know in order to get to that it's it, most people would just be scared like it seems like a very very daunting idea to most people i think if you if you were to bring that up but on the other side of that uh yeah you know our attachments is it seems to be bliss and tranquility and joy like you said i'm glad you uh i'm glad you brought that up yeah we're just that, looking that actually, for it you're yeah the ordinary person is looking for happiness it's just they're not very skillful at it so we're hmm. we're upping the game but it means that you can't look for the temporary happiness if you want to have the more sustained happiness. So mm. it means that you have to pull your mind away from little, little hits of happiness in order to, and sometimes you, it has, you have to face a little bit of a desert sometimes uh, of sense of sensory deprivation until the, the muscles fill in, the capacity to have sustained ease fills in. Uh, this is a, like mm. in a it, this is just a craft, by the way. This is a craft and a skill. It's closer to athletics than it is to philosophy. It's closer to uh, music than it is to philosophy. It's, you, you have to practice these scales. And you can't go out and play with the other boys when you're practicing your violin, you know. So uh, there's no way around this. But if you can get to a certain stage, then the joy comes up and you're glad you did it, you know. So this is, uh, you have to uh, move away from instant gratification to a, some ability to delay gratification in order to have a higher and more sustained well-being and gratification. That's the idea. A long, higher sustainable well-being and happiness, which is not subject to the little vagaries of life. Mm. Happiness without pleasure. Well, happiness is a, it's without sensory pleasure. So most people's pleasure is because of sights and sounds, smells, taste, touches. And some people are more cerebral, like you're more cerebral. So you get pleasure out of your ideas. See? So, and some people who are cerebral think, I'm kind of a philosopher. I don't need all of that sensory stuff. But if I take away your books, and I put you in a bare room without your books and without your talk to other philosophers, then you feel your, you know now where your sensory dependency is on ideas and that's mm. your dependency. So we want to go even beyond that so that we don't have to rely on, on ideas, interesting new ideas flowing through our head all the time. Nor do we need pecan pie all the time uh, or <laughs> the smell of fresh baked bread or etc. We, we don't have to go skydiving or cliff diving or whatever. So uh, these are, these are, we're not, we're not, you know, these are not harmful things. They're not immoral in any way. And we don't condemn them, but we just say, beware because they're short lived and you can really fall into a, 
into a very agonized state if you're depending on this and you can't get them. So they're very precarious places to place your happiness, the little hits of this and that. Very precarious. Mm. I, I like how you compared the, the, the pecan pie to my philosophical meanderings. Because at the end of the day, they are the same thing. It's just attachment to something that we think is going to bring us to some kind of, I guess you could say happiness or, you know, some kind of just truth. But either way, those, like you said, the books fade and so does the pies. And me personally, I'm, uh, I'm a yoga teacher. I've, I've put myself through very intense asana practice throughout the years. I've went through... Um, weekly sensory deprivation tank um, sessions, holotropic breathing, um, mass amounts of entheogenic uh, plant medicines. And it almost, me going through all of these uh, yogic adventures, it seems like I'm chasing something. Like there's something, some yearning for some kind of truth in me. And there's just some kind of like, um, I guess you can say spiritual attachment that I'm, 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 I'm just trying to grasp at. I don't know what it is. And it, it, I guess I may think it's more of a uh, honorable attempt than, you know, people finding their pleasure from video games or something. But at the end of the day, like you just described, it's the same thing. It's me being attached to some kind of just, just something. It's me just, just thinking that my happiness is going to come from these intense activities. And the more that I listen to you and listen to your videos, it seems like uh, it's, um, it's just fruitless actions. Like uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really into yogic philosophy as well and, and reading um, old yogic texts like the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. And my question to you is, are those, would you say, are those fruitless attempts? Am I, am I just chasing something that I'll never find? Or is there value in that as well? Like where does the value lie in, in my yogic adventures? No, those are, those are actually good. Uh, this is different. <clears throat> there's, there's a happiness which uh, leads to unhappiness, which is just like a too much cherry pie. It's, it's happy for a while, and then you just feel sick. <laughs> and then there's happiness that leads to happiness. So if you, and there's unhappiness that leads to happiness as well. So, you, you know, the sweaty asanas and the stretches and the visits to India and uh, this stuff is sometimes there's pain and suffering involved in it, but it's aimed at a higher happiness. Now, <clears throat> Buddhism is also doesn't, now there's, there's schools of, of Indian philosophy, Advaita Vedanta sometimes kind of tells you to just abandon your efforts. There's, there's nothing to get, and abandon your efforts, etc. Buddhism does not say that. Buddhism is very much involved in what's called chanda, which means right, uh, right desire, right spiritual desire. You need strong spiritual motivation to accomplish this uh, quality of sustained well-being and that's your goal and you're going to have to actually uh, go through some perhaps some painful experiences in order to get there but the buddha says don't flinch that is what you have to do you you you, you can't you're 
you're trapped already in attachment and desire. You want to be free of that. That means you're going to have a master desire to get rid of those desires. That desire cannot be gotten rid of until you accomplish the task. So a man comes to the Buddha one time and he says, you teach non-desire, non-grasping. But then you have a path which you have to use a lot of initiative and ambition to, to go on. Isn't that a contradiction? And the Buddha says, no, no. It is like a man who has a sliver in his hand. He's got a sliver in his hand. It's bothering him. So then he takes a needle to get the sliver out. But once he gets the sliver out, he puts the needle aside. So that is, the needle is our spiritual aspiration towards this. Our, the, we have a sliver. It's the unsatisfactory quality of life. It's the, the lack, the disappointments and, and potential sufferings of life. We need to get that out. And it's going to hurt, but once you get it out, you stop. You don't keep going, picking at it. You set it aside. Desire is, the problem is gone, and then the, the requirement for the solution is also set down. So now you're, you're free. But until that time, relentless effort, strong effort in that direction has to be made. Inquiry. So you're, you're exploring the Upanishads, the Vedas, Buddhism, uh, psychotropics, all these things, you're giving it everything you got and you're learning along the way and that is your spiritual sadhana, is your, yes, your, your journey and uh, <clears throat> it, will, it will narrow because you, you, you find that you've been there, done that with some things and you think this is a higher, this is a better way, I'll set that one aside, I'll go to this this is all the necessary uh, wanderings to get there. But those are, those are proper efforts uh, uh, towards it. And, and you, sometimes you just have to go through those things. But the more you get uh, practiced, and this, uh, these practice, mental practices start at first are, are quite onerous and uh, a bit of a chore. But eventually they take on a life of their own and they, they become effortless. It, it's there. It's effortless. So then you feel so glad you made the journey. You come to the top of the mountain, you just look down. See, very, that was quite a climb, but it's done and I got there. So that, all of this uh, effort and so forth is, is necessary, especially in, a, in our present culture, because there's, you're presented with a myriad of, of possibilities and you, you have to go and inquire. I did many of these things. I did Tai Chi and I did yoga and I, I did music and I did all of these things. Uh, uh, and these are kind of necessary to kind of get experience and, and sort out, well, which one do I, and, and by the way, yoga, you know, uh, was very helpful. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the stretches and so forth were quite helpful. And, but at some point I didn't need them anymore. Tai Chi was helpful. Yoga was helpful. I didn't need them anymore. Um, so it's a, Buddhism is a form of yoga, which is what we call Raja Yoga. You know, you got Karma Yoga, Hatha Yoga, etc. cetera, uh, service yoga. By the way, Buddhism has those in them as well. Karma Yoga. We have some uh, stewards here. There's four other people in the room with us. They're here helping at the monastery and doing their practice, and they make the place run. And that's their actions are meritorious. They're, they're 
they're <clears throat> doing wholesome actions. So that's karma yoga. Raja yoga is exclusively of the heart, mind. And this is, doesn't require any kind of uh, postures or stretching or any even charitable activities or, or devotion or anything. It's purely introspective, analytical, uh, contemplative meditation. And that's, a, that's the, it's called Raja. Uh, you know, you know the, the meaning of this word Raja is the king. The king of meditation. This is for the royalty. It's king. So if you can just use your head, that's for, some people can do that. And if they're inclined. But other people are, they're not inclined to this. They, they don't have that, that thing. But they do beautiful acts of charity. They're very devoted, etc. And they get beautiful benefits from that. But this this is a, a type of, uh, of yoga uh, or developmental progress that you can make exclusively of the mind and the heart. You know. mm. I see. So once, so they're not fruitless. I'm, I'm, I thank you for telling me that I'm not crazy and uh, <laughs> I'll continue my, my quest. <laughs> no. Um, I, I think it goes along the lines of, um, it's kind of like Alan Watts said, you know, once you get the message, hang up the phone. And that's, 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 it seems to be, a, that's what you said. And, and, you know, when I, whenever I find that I get the message from whatever my practice may be to hang up the phone. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you, um, have you, like what, what yoga, how do I phrase this? do you have a practice of yoga? Like is, how does yoga apply to your Buddhist practice? Is there any kind of uh, like, is it bhakti? What, how would you dive into your yogic well, principles? All, <clears throat> I mean, all, all of these things, by the way, the Bhagavad Gita is often represented as a very exclusively Hindu text based on vastly ancient <laughs> teachings, etc. But Bhagavad Gita really is probably a reaction to Buddhism. <laughs> it's post-Buddhist mostly. Uh, the, the Upanishads and the Vedas are, were uh, certainly around and they were property of the Brahmanic classes, the priestly class, and they were exclusive property of them. And ordinary people could not have access to them and they couldn't recite the mantras or any of the, uh, the, the sutras, sutras from them as well, they get, you get your, your tongue cut off if you, if you did that. So it's a property. And because it's a, like that, they can alter or revise any texts they want because they're, they're not texts. They weren't written down. They were oral transmissions. So when uh, the Buddha came up, he was quite disturbing to Indian society. He was disturbing to everybody, uh, especially the priestly class. They, they felt they were, it was entirely being questioned. Their, their legitimacy was being questioned because they're just born into a caste, right? So you don't have to have any qualifications. You just have to be the son of a Brahmin, and now, now you're in. So you're, you're kind of this holy person. But they're not necessarily holy. So... Buddhism was starting to take off and, and it starts to appear in India and, and monks are wandering around and people are hearing these talks. And in fact, Brahmins and other people are converting to that. They're thinking this is very, this is different. 
it, it's closer to Greek philosophy. The contemporary of the Buddha is like Socrates. This kind of bringing reason and analysis into, into existence is similar to what was happening in Greece at, in the fifth century as well. And so they had to respond to this and they did it in a, in a fairly clever way. They kind of, they said, well, there's a, there's a lot of ways to, to look at this. Here's uh, bhakti and there's karma yoga and there's hatha yoga and there's uh, raja yoga. And you know, everybody takes their, you know, it depends on your thing, et cetera. So this is actually a kind of a, a way of, without being in direct conflict, it's kind of attempt to kind of swallow uh, the new challenge actually and expand it and because they have exclusive access to the sources they can do this they can come up with this this is very ancient actually I made it up yesterday <laughs> so this is what happened it's happening even today in yoga you'll find that some of the yoga traditions are 40 years old <laughs> you know uh, the ancient tradition of this mm -hmm. uh, got made up 40 <laughs> years ago so this happens mm -hmm. a lot in all world history so we have to become familiar with this, but Buddhism has, of course, devotion. So a lot of people are very devotional and this is equivalent to this bhakti. It's bhakti yoga is, Christianity is bhakti yoga, you know? It's devotion. Uh, and, and then there's hatha yoga, which is uh, a, form, a very ingenious form of physical manipulations to help calm the mind and make the mind serene is the support for the mind. Original postures are really actually when you, you know, this, this Surya where the Surya posture is actually the, they're actually worshiping the sun. They're not doing a stretch. They're, they're actually at the time there were sun worshipers and it's, they, they prostrated themselves to the sun and to the moon. These were living deities. And now we, we extract that and, and here's this, this Surya posture or uh, all of these postures. These are actually devotional uh, prostrations to deities, but they have been turned into uh, physical uh, uh, functions because it, in, in a strange way, it does affect your mind. You feel like you are in contact with the sun god. <laughs> Because you feel so serene, I think. But it's actually the stretching and the breathing that makes you so serene. Mm. So uh, Buddhism doesn't, doesn't teach the monks that or anything like that. It, it, there's no physical processing to help settle the mind. Actually, Hatha Yoga is quite good. And I think especially for Westerners whose bodies are not uh, flexible. In order to eventually sit in meditation, especially with crossed legs, it really is very helpful to do some good like a yengar yoga, so some nice stretching yoga, like stretch those muscles out so you become flexible. And that, and deep breathing and holding the breath, et cetera, is also very good for changing the wave patterns in the brain. Very good. You, you're starting to induce a kind of um, uh, serenity that you can't get to normally from your jab. You know, you're, you're engaged with all kinds of stuff that's too far. You can't find any peace. So if we take you out and make you hold your breath and exhale and stretch and so forth, then you might have a shot at it. You might have, you might get a taste of that serenity. 
The other thing that Buddhism uses is chanting. And so you have a lot of group chanting. And you chant, it doesn't really matter what the words are. It just blah, 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 blah. It's, it's, it's in a, usually in a language you can't understand. It's, a, it's Pali or, or Sanskrit or, you know. But anyway, it goes on. And it, it doesn't matter what you said. If you chant for half an hour, you'll just feel different. You know, you'll, it, it calms the mind. We know that about music. We know about, et cetera, drumming, chanting. All cultures use this because it changes your, your consciousness. So folk, the folk who come to the med, monasteries, often the monks will chant and involve them in chanting. In some of these places, they go on, it's an all-night chant. I mean, or even a day, several days, they're chanting. Well, lay people show up who don't meditate. And that, it's like being the top of your skull being open and have a brain massage, you know? You feel like, I've just had a brain massage. Wow, I don't know what my problem was anymore, you know? So this is the effect of chanting and so forth. I'm not, that's not my thing so much. I did it. In fact, I, in music school, we would, you know, you have to inquire at the university. It's a two-hour rehearsal session, standing up in a stone-cold church, doing vocal exercises and singing Brahms and so forth. That, that does something to you too. <laughs> but my, my thing is, is, is uh, simple, is, is nature, uh, silence, and meditation, especially breath meditation, but also uh, cultivating the heart, the loving kindness meditation. And these are internal uh, processes that don't require chanting or anything like that. But I, I'm, I'm part of the community. And so I, 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 ch I join in these chants. I join in whatever the community requires because we have to appeal to a broad group of people. And so I do all these things. I even do physical work. I, I'm, I pick up carpentry along the way, all these things. That's my karma yoga. It's not what I, need to do or want to do, but it's something that is just part of uh, monastic life. You, you end up being quite active in monastic life as well, and some, in some ways creative as well. So it's not a narrow life, and there's a spectrum of personalities that benefit from each of these types of practices. My own inclination is towards uh, intellectual understanding, uh, investigation of the suttas, and then you see that uh, all the history of it all. I want to inquire. I want to know what's going on, and etc. But also, my that can be my uh, deficit as well. So I need to know how to shut this thing down, and that is what breath meditation does. Is like stop that thinking, because you can't ultimately get there by thinking. It's that's like going to a restaurant and you just can't get past the menu. You end up never ordering because you're just so interested in so many possibilities here. And then you, you come out of the restaurant, you never eat. So mm. you, the breath meditation is a way to actually have the experience of peace. And it doesn't require any thinking. You know? It's not about thoughts. You, you don't get it through thoughts. So this is, this is my inclination. <clears throat> mm. It seems to me like uh, the school of yoga is... Uh, almost like a prerequisite to Buddhism, which it was quite, you know, chronologically in a way it was, but it seems like, you know, uh, 
in order to get the most out of, in my opinion, in order to get the most out of, you know, the tenets of Buddhism, it seems as though like it's good to also be well aware of, of uh, the philosophy of yoga and, you know, the actual doing the actual asanas as well, because I've heard this before that um, the purpose of doing physical yoga was so that monks or anybody could sit in an upright position for long periods of time. Is that true? Uh, it, it can help like, uh, uh, it, by the way, uh, in, uh, if you go to Sri Lanka or Thailand or Burma into a monastery, like they will pretty well dismiss yoga. They might not even allow you to do any uh, stretches. Uh, but, uh, I think that's a mistake, uh, because they don't understand what Western bodies and minds are really like. Our minds are, um, we're actually quite analytical. We've been trained this way. We have an education system that is unlike any that's been on the earth before. We start at four or five and you can't get out of there till you're 17 at the earliest. And then quite often you're into university and everything. That's an amazing thing to, to, to force a whole generations through. So we, we're, we know how to think. And, uh, but I, they don't show you the off switch. So they only show you the on switch and everything is just critical thinking. And so you're left with this terrible machine that is eats itself, you know? So you don't know where to, how to switch this thing off. <clears throat> and then you have a body that's been raised kind of on a couch and it's, it's never been forced to hold its own back up. You know, you're, you're sitting in very, the furniture has changed since the fifth, you know, when I was growing up, uh, uh, dining tables and everything had wooden chairs. <laughs> and most people before the fifties, they didn't have a padded chair in their house. It's a wooden chair and you sit on that. You go to church and it's a wooden pew and you kneel. <laughs> they don't have those things anymore. So our bodies are pasty and rigid. And when we do our exercise, we, we do long distance running or we play soccer and usually injure ourselves several times as teenagers and make ourselves inflexible. And that, that's very hard. You can't sit with that kind of body. So yoga is one of the few flexible kind of structures that really helps the Western body and also helps the Western mind. But Asians <clears throat> don't seem to appreciate it because they, at least up to now, <clears throat> they, they have, uh, if you go to a village in Thailand, the, the monasteries are full of village farm boys who have 4% body fat and they can do without ever practicing it or trying it, they can put themselves in double locked full Lotus without even trying. They've never sat on a chair in their life. They sit on a bare wood floor. They're skinny as a rake and they're flexible as rubber. And they don't even know what you're talking about when you say it's uncomfortable to sit on a concrete floor for four hours with no pads. They don't know what you're talking about. So, and that person also never went to school. It went, never went beyond grade five. They, they don't, their heads are not full of ideas. They don't know how far it is to the sun or anything like that. They, they're just not, that's not their burden. So our, 
the Western mind and body is a specialty that Westerners should, Westerners who have been through all of that should come back and say, now, look here, we're not the same. We're not village farm boys. We're not flexible as rubber. We have a head full of ideas and we have a body that's raised on a sofa. So we got to do something about this to help us along here. <laughs> so that's how it works. Yeah, that's interesting that, you, you know, yoga was born in Asia and it seems to be, as you said, uh, in a way almost repulsive to people in Asia. When in America, it's taking off like crazy. I mean, it's not, may not be like, you know, the full, it, traditional yoga, it may be corporatized yoga, but you know, it's still, it's, it's taking off in the West, like a, like craziness. Um, so yeah, I find that it's very interesting. I'd like to switch up the topic a little bit here and ask you, what is God to you? Is it simply consciousness itself? Is it just the, the felt presence of the moment? Is it just being here, the, like the here and now? Is, is, is there, or is there no God or no, nothing? Well, Buddhism has uh, a very developed uh, cosmology. Um, it has all of the heavens and ghost realms and hells and all of this kind of stuff in most, the most articulated version you can find. But it doesn't have the notion of a supreme uh, uh, creator of the universe. The, the Buddha very definitely critiqued that idea. And he, he says, when he was asked about the origin of the universe, he said, uh, that is an unanswerable question and you should not waste your time on it. Does, is it infinite or finite? Does it have a beginning in time or not? Is, the, is it infinite or finite in space? Those are called the unthinkables and should be set aside as kind of fruitless waste. A waste. So we don't have a creation myth. There is no need to explain the beginning of the universe. We said, don't, don't think about it. <laughs> You'll never come to the end. You know, both, both answers are unsatisfactory. It came out of nothing. It, it, it needs a creator. Well, then who, why doesn't the creator need a creator? So <clears throat> both are lead down a rabbit hole of infinite kind of, uh, unprofitable thinking. So the Buddha said, just, just don't think about it. Uh, as far as interaction with beings in other dimensions, the Buddhism is full of it. You know, <clears throat> there are other beings and you're, you're sometimes intuiting that them, uh, you're feeling it, etc. This is the invisible world. In, in modern West, uh, the invisible world is uh, germs. <laughs> like you can, you can see how people are responding to the COVID thing. It's, it's like the ghost realm. Like there's people who don't believe in ghosts <laughs> and there's people who are terrified of ghosts and they think they have a ghost and the ghost is in them. And there's all kinds of this, it's an invisible world and strange and, and, and yet it's, it's, you can see it under a microscope. You can't see it with your naked eye, but you can see it under a microscope. And then there's people who, when they get it, Mm, nothing happens and other people die from it. So there's a, this is the mysterious, we're in mysterious interactions with worlds 
somewhat out of our out of our plain vision, but we we know about and and our relationship as an individual to them is very very different and quite a spectrum. So, but primarily in Buddhism, those are all acknowledged. But the main issue is how is your practice? You're responsible for your own well-being and practice and your ethical conduct in this world. Keep your eye on that. Never mind somebody else out there. Because when you introduce the idea of God, <clears throat> you complicate your, your spiritual practice. People in, the, in Christianity, they endless, all of what's called theology is spent making huge libraries of books about nature of God. <clears throat> and really, if he's, if he's what they say is it's, it's a waste of time. You can't figure it out. So Buddhism says, don't talk about that. Talk about your, your, own, your own actions, your thoughts, your speech, your actions. Don't bring anything else into this. Concentrate on that. And you will ex have a direct experience of that. You will not be asking somebody to play with your mind or anything like that. And you will not also be asking somebody to forgive your actions. So you make some mistakes, you did bad things and so forth. You want forgiveness. You want to say, can somebody erase that? Buddhism doesn't ask for that. It's just well, whatever we did, it's done. And we're not asking to be, to be erased. We're not, we don't think anybody can erase it because if, if a being, somebody can erase any of this stuff, then your life is really not your life. You are not responsible and it tends to persuade you to be careless. If you can just get forgiveness and grace, it's not, I, you know, you, you tend to encourage your lack of concern. If you're responsible for your actions, then you tend to be very responsible. You, you, if you believe that you're really, your, your actions have consequences and nobody can take it away from you or give it to you, <clears throat> then you're in, a, you're in a sense of self-determination and you also have concern for your own well-being. And this is a very important thing to have. It's like high concern for your future and your present well-being. But you should not dwell on the past with remorse. So guilt and remorse are not something, of, not a feature of Buddhism, but concern for the present and the future are very uh, high concerns. Yeah. Mm. I completely agree. I think I've had that before. I just figured I'd run that question by you, but I completely agree. If there is this omnipotent and almighty force it goes beyond all thought beyond all concepts of our monkey mind and it's it's it is feeble uh to even think about or try to think about or even try to conceive it and i think it really just comes down to the western world or the western mind just wanting to not be alone because human beings one of our biggest fears it seems to be is to be, is to be alone and to actually it is scary to be held accountable for your own actions so, so like you said it, it just comes down to fear and we, it, there is something in our minds that I think is intrinsic to us that where people think it's like they want to believe in God even if it, it doesn't make any sense there there's something where we want to know that it's everything is going to be okay but that's why I love 
Buddhism so much because it's just like this harsh truth. It's just, it tells us that, you know, it's, it, you know, you said, don't even worry about that. This is, you are accountable for your own actions. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I think that a lot of people um, <clears throat> identify the idea of God with, with a, another life. So they're not annihilationists, but they don't know any other alternative. So for the, you know, the, the American sort of stuff is, it's either God or you're an atheist. Uh, and an atheist yeah. is a annihilationist. And so <clears throat> they don't know any other alternative, but Buddhism is not particularly theistic, but it's not annihilationist either. So all of those realms and experiences are possible, but you don't need to posit a ultimate being who created all this. It's not necessary. And you can maintain continued existence and set, but with the emphasis that be concerned about your own conduct in this. Uh, no, you don't really get away with anything. There are laws in the universe. We see that gravity has, you, you, you don't, you, no one's exempt from gravity. <laughs> whether you're, whether you don't, whether you're ignorant or at anything, the law applies to you. So there are laws of uh, moral cause and effect that you, uh, you are, you're going to receive the results from your, your actions. And even if you're unskillful, it's just a law. It's not personal. It's not, a, it's not somebody doing this. Nobody's keeping track. It's just the nature of reality that moral, moral decisions have results. Mm. Karma? Yeah, karma. Karma is uh, just, is the only word, the, the word means action. And before the time of the Buddha, the word karma meant action. And your karma also in some uh, Indian teachings just means your duty. So quite often in the Sikh traditions, karma is your duty in society. And you'll see this in the Bhagavad Gita. You have a duty. Sometimes it's involving war. Are you going to war? Because it's your duty or your karma. You're born into a certain caste. It's your karma. But the Buddha redefined re the word karma. He said, karma, I say, is intention. And it is not your duty, your caste duty, or your social duty, or your job. Remember the Nazis, uh, we were just doing our job, right? So they, they thought they were not responsible for their own intentional actions because they were doing, they were following their duty and that was, that's the definition of men, many civilizations before the Buddha is that you just have social obligations and you just follow them. It's not about right or wrong. You just follow those duties. But the Buddha is saying, no, it doesn't matter what situation, you are a moral, ethical agent and you make decisions and you get the consequences of the decisions you make as an individual you can't give them to anybody else and nobody can give them to you. You're the one who does evil. You're the one who does good and nobody else. And you get the consequences. Mm. This is the first time actually. an individual has been made responsible. Yeah, this is the 
This is first time individuals have responsibility and you can't pass it off onto a group or a culture or a political party or a village or a family. You're responsible. Yeah, mm. yeah I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, Buddhism is such an attractive, attractive uh, way of life. It really is. It's, it's, it's uh, so pure. So uh, it's so just in your face. It's just, it just says, this is how it is. And this is how you need to be. And that's why I love it. I love exploring the ideas of it. It's great. I, um, I have one question that I've always wanted to ask a Buddhist because I recently learned of the idea of Madhraya and the, uh, you know, as Buddha returning again, I guess, in, in another form. Um, is I, it doesn't make sense to me because if, if the Buddha attained nirvana, then he wouldn't return. Maitreya. So is is yeah, Maitreya is ah. is he is he? How is that possible for him to return in another form if he had attained nirvana when he was the Buddha? Yes, it's not possible. <clears throat> uh, what what it is is there <clears throat> Christianity. For Christians, uh, Jesus is a unique event in history, never to be repeated. And uh, whereas for Buddhism, uh, there's a, un throughout time and unfolding and collapsing of universes, Buddhas arise and pass away. Uh, so it won't be, it's not the Buddha coming back as Metea. It's the, the next Buddha uh, is the name, the next Buddha's name is Metea, which means loving kindness. <clears throat> and so it won't, it's not the Buddha that passed away 2,500 years ago into Nibbana. That he, as he said just before he died, he said, uh, after my death, neither gods nor humans will see me. Be clear on that. You cannot talk to me. <laughs> I'm not in heaven. You will not see me. I'm not coming back. I'm at the end of the, that's what a Buddha and all fully enlightened beings are no longer taking rebirth at all. However, there are uh, future Buddhas to arise. So it's like Einstein, you know, there's going to be another, we always say, oh, he's an Einstein, or there's another Mozart for you, you know. So it's not necessarily Mozart took rebirth, but it, that, that particular genius of consciousness is there. We call them a genius, right? Uh, it's just a, a general talk. We, we recognize this is a special consciousness and it's probably not, it's not the first time we've seen it. It, it comes up from time to time and there'll be, there'll be another Mozart, there'll be another Einstein and there will be another Buddha, but it's not this one. It's, there's no rebirth for this one. I see. I see. So it's more of the spirit of Buddha, not the like a literal spirit of Buddha, but it's the, the, uh, the qualities that Buddha um, inherited. He, it's the consciousness. I, I know what you mean. The consciousness, yes. I see. Yeah. Well, so <clears throat> one, time I, oh, one time I did an interfaith uh, with uh, some, I did it, it was an interesting when it was with Father Thomas Keating, who is uh, the developer of Centering Prayer, 
Uh, he's a was the abbot of a of a, a Trappist monastery. If he's passed away now, but he's he was very well known in Catholic circles at the time, and he had a great interest in Buddhism and learned from Buddhist monks as well. And a a Sufi master and a uh, uh, rab a contemplative rabbi, and the four of us decided to have a. A, a day in the forest with anybody who wanted to come. And we, it was called a day a together in silence. So all these people from different walks of life came there. And, and when you're silent, you, you don't know who's who, right? And each of us just gave a little talk on their version of how to be, how to be in silence. <clears throat> and we, then we, we, spent, we stayed together at a house overnight and we had lunch together. And I had to just sit around the kitchen table with these guys. I, and I sat with Father Thomas Keating, who was 84 at the time. And we sat down at the table and he said, what is Christ consciousness? <laughs> I, I, said, I said, well, interesting that you ask. You know, uh, I, I said, now, this is probably heretical from the Catholic point of view, but it's not being conscious of Christ, but having the very consciousness that Christ had. So being Christ, being, being, and he said, surprising to me, he said, of course, of course, but what is it? <laughs> so first of all, it's already a heretical idea. Christians don't, Christ is one thing, you're not Christ, you're not that, you, you can't be that. But from a Buddhist point of view, it, <clears throat> consciousness is, is not personal. You, you, you understand everything that another consciousness has understood, and you're identical with that consciousness. So it's like understanding um, relativity. Once you understand that, that's the consciousness of Einstein. Now you're... You know as much as Einstein, once you understand relativity. So, but he actually, I didn't understand. He, he actually wanted me to tell him what it was. How does it feel? You know, and so forth. And I said, well, <laughs> that's a little hard to talk, to say, you know, <laughs> how does Christ consciousness feel? But that's enlightenment. And enlightenment primarily is inexpressible, except that we must tell people it's good. And it's about how you feel. So it's not, when you feel good, you are kind of, when you're, when you're profoundly in love, truly open-heartedly in love, even with just one person, you're kind of temporarily enlightened for a little while there. You're, you're enlightened. It's, it's just not going to last, you know. <laughs> but you're <laughs> engaged. You're fully, truly full, engaged, and all fear and everything has left behind, and you're full of generosity and open-heartedness. And that's what we're talking about. What else would we be talking about? Nothing else is worth doing. This is the only thing that's worth mm -hmm. doing. Yeah. Ajahn, I think I'll, I'll leave you with one last question off of that. Is it all about love? Uh, the Buddha said, love <clears throat> is the most potent uh, if you can generate love for even uh, a few seconds, it has the most power and potency for 
your own well-being in the future has the most return on investment, the most powerful single emotion. It's the second most powerful. There is one, only one beyond that, and that is insight into impermanence, because that is the final liberation. Love is an emotional, is the most supreme emotional experience, but does not necessarily truly always give you insight into the impermanence of things. So you need the both. Even after impermanence, love, the Buddha is radiating loving kindness all the time. Monks, uh, enlightened people are not just living remotely and not caring about anything. They also are radiating loving kindness for beings, uh, sometimes dwelling in that throughout their lives, night and day, right? It's, a it's the most wonderful of the emotions. Everybody should just cultivate it. You don't need anybody around. You can do it alone. In fact, it's probably better to do it alone. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I 100% I agree. We all need to love a little more. We all need to especially love ourselves a little more. Um, but yeah, it is, it's very powerful. The, 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 the genuine feeling of unconditional love it's what we all strive for it's what will make this world a, a better place and i think the world needs a little bit more of it right now um, but it starts with with ourselves i think you know it starts with loving yourself it starts wherever it wherever you can start and that's really the mm -hmm. thing is that quite often um people are told they they must love themselves and then they, et cetera. But sometimes that's the hardest thing to do for them. So if it starts with, sometimes it has to be just your kitten or your dog. You know? <laughs> uh, wherever you can find a foothold in there, get the door open and expand that loving kindness. And eventually you will be included in it as well uh, with others. Uh, no one, eventually no one is left out, but you, you start with the easy ones and then you work out. Mm. Mm. Oh, I think that's a, a wonderful point to end it at, Ajahn. Um, I think uh, I could ask you questions all night, but I'd, I'd like to give you a break. Um, but thank you so much for coming on here. I am so grateful for you giving me the time to come on here and enlighten me and enlighten the audience, whoever wishes to... Uh, to watch this but um yeah like like i said I, I i'm eternally grateful for you coming on you are a uh encyclopedia on on the on the dharma and it's uh it's it's mind-blowing to me but um yeah i thank you so much for coming on again and um do you have any last words you would like to give anybody or give the audience well uh I think we should all give Gary some appreciation for finding this obscure monk and bringing him on his channel and uh, <laughs> asking some very insightful and useful questions with a great, very good demeanor. And I encourage everybody, watch Gary's channel. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the good publicity and um, I will definitely be watching your videos. I've, I've went through plenty of your videos. I encourage anybody that's watching this to 
search for you? Uh, is it the Birkhan Monastery or Birkin Monastery? Yes. Yes. Okay. Ajahn Sona YouTube channel. So just type in Ajahn Sona and then you'll get there. The next video that's coming up yes. is 32 years as a monk. So the last one was 20. So I'm doing a 12 year uh, update. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Ajahn. I will definitely be watching your update and um, any further videos or anything else you decide to put on in the future. I, uh, I think uh, you being here on this earth is, is a blessing to everyone. So uh, thank you and namaste.